Okay, we're going to start this morning, again, continuing in our study of the attributes of God using um, this book by Arthur W. Pink, The Attributes of God. Uh, I want to start this morning by reading it from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Um, and while, while folks are flipping there, we're going to look today at, in the edition of the book I have, chapters 4 and chapters 15, uh, chapter 15. So that's the foreknowledge of God and the love of God, um, which are intimately connected. And we'll talk about how that is and why that is. Um, not so clear, just if you look up a dictionary definition of those two words, it might not be so clear. But the way that scripture uses uh, the, the words and describes God using those words we'll see very clearly but both are displayed prominently in this passage uh, in a glorious statement so I'll read uh, Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3 through verse 6 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray to begin our discussion. Lord our God, Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we even attempt to apprehend your attributes, your divine essence, your being, your character. Lord, you are far above us. You are beyond containment. You are infinite. And we are conscious uh, that we are creatures. Our every thought comes from you. Our every capacity comes from you. Indeed, nothing that is uh, came to be apart from you. We praise you that you know all things, uh, that you are sovereign over all things. And today as we discuss your foreknowledge and your love for your saints, we pray that you might illuminate our minds by your spirit. Help us to understand for our minds uh, truly can only understand your truths by your help. And so we ask for that help this morning and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we talked about uh, the decree of God, His eternal and unconditional purpose or determination with respect to all things. It is comprehensive. All things were ordained by God before He laid the foundations of the world. From eternity, all things were decreed by God. We also talked about the knowledge of God. Necessarily flowing from the decree is the fact that God knows all things. If He decreed all things, of course He knows all things. Um, and that's without exception. Uh, going to every creature from the highest to the lowest, every circumstance, every event that can or will ever happen is comprehended and known by God. Uh, as an intellectual matter, it is known. Um, he is omniscient. So we're going to start by looking at chapter 4 in Pink's book, The Foreknowledge of God. Um, and if we've already seen that God preordained all things in His decree, and we've already seen that God knows all things... What's, what can foreknowledge add to us? If it's uh, just knowing something beforehand, what can that add to us? Uh, what have we not covered? Um, and we'll see that 
foreknowledge includes much more than that. Um, so I want to read... Well, actually, so what... I'll start with this. Uh, foreknowledge, just to lay out a bit of what it is and what we're talking about. Foreknowledge is actually God's attribute that reveals to us his unconditional election, his electing love for a particular people from eternity past. Uh, when God knows something beforehand, when God knows people beforehand, uh, that's, uh, that's something very significant and different than just an intellectual um, comprehension of a fact or, or an event. So it's much more closely related. The idea of foreknowledge, what's, uh, what is understood in that word, in that term in Scripture, is much more closely related to God's love than it is uh, to his knowledge, like we talked about last week, um, as, as an intellectual, as a matter of God's intellect, his omniscience. So foreknowledge is closer to, to God's love, which is why I wanted to take these two chapters out of order, taking the, the love of God, chapter 15, bringing it toward the front, to talk about them together because they're very closely related. Um, so I've already said that foreknowledge is not simply to know something beforehand. Um, and actually my, my resources that I've been going to, Bovink and Van, Van Maastricht, uh, were not very helpful on this, on this point. They discussed it primarily as a matter of God's intellect, um, knowing things beforehand. Um, but Pink helps us see that that's not the way that scripture uses the term foreknowledge. Certainly it's true that God knows all things beforehand. Again, that, that's what we talked about last week. He does know all things beforehand. Uh, but when, God, uh, when scripture uses the term foreknowledge in all the places that it does, it's referring to um, God's electing love for people that distinguishes, sets people apart. So I'm going to read here from Pink. And if you've got this version of the book, this is page 28. When the solemn and blessed subject of divine foreordination is expounded, when God's eternal choice of certain ones to be conformed to the image of his son is set forth, the enemy sends along some man to argue that election is based upon the foreknowledge of God. And this foreknowledge is interpreted to mean that God foresaw certain ones would be more pliable than others, that they would respond more readily to the strivings of the Spirit, and that because God knew they would believe, he accordingly predestinated them unto salvation. But such a statement is radically wrong. It repudiates the truth of total depravity, for it argues that there is something good in some men. It takes away the independency of God, for it makes his decrees rest upon what he discovers in the creature. It completely turns things upside down, for in saying God foresaw certain sinners would believe in Christ... And that because of this, he predestinated them unto salvation is the very reverse of the truth. Now, I want to be clear that um, Bob Inc. And, and Van Maastricht were not saying that that's where election comes from, that election is based on God foreseeing something good in man. That's not what, what they were uh, talking about. They just didn't address, uh, at least from what I looked at this week, they didn't address foreknowledge in connection to election. Um, so they were just talking about the intellectual attribute of God, knowing things beforehand, uh, a piece of what we talked about last week of the knowledge of God 
being comprehensive and being omniscient. So I want to be clear that I'm not uh, uh, accusing Bavink and Van Maastricht of, of heresy uh, on this point. But nevertheless, there are people that see the word uh, foreknowledge, particularly in Romans 8, uh, talking about uh, whom he foreknew, he also uh, predestinated uh, to be conformed to the image of his son. They take that and, and interpret the word foreknowledge there, like Pink says, that it is God foreseeing that we would believe and therefore predestinating us, electing us. Uh, and as Pink says, that is not what that term means and that leads to the, the incorrect consequences in doctrine that he outlined. Uh, the idea that we have something good in us that leads God then to respond to what he finds in the creature. And there's all kinds of errors there, um, undermining total depravity, which is clear throughout Scripture, undermining the independence of God, um, the sovereignty of God in election, which are plain on every page of Scripture. So we cannot interpret, uh, interpret the word that way. So we are going to be dealing with foreknowledge uh, as the electing love of God, uh, primarily. Um, so, and, and to kind of prove this point, Pink helpfully talks about, uh, gives us some interpretive rules about Scripture, or one interpretive rule. Um, here he's talking about the idea that the meaning of scriptural terms is not always plain on its face. We can't always, especially in the translated English uh, versions, we can't just go to a dictionary and look up what the word means to understand all that's encompassed and comprehended in Scripture by the word. Um, so here's what he says. And this is very helpful and I think applies in many other places. He says, what is meant by foreknowledge? To know beforehand is the ready reply of many. But we must not jump to conclusions, nor must we turn to Webster's Dictionary as the final court of appeal. For it is not a matter of etymology of the term employed. What is needed is to find out how the word is used in Scripture. The Holy Spirit's usage of an expression always defines its meaning and scope. It is failure to apply this simple rule, which is responsible for so much confusion and error. So many people assume that they already know the signification of a certain word used in Scripture, and then they are too dilatory or slow to test their assumptions by means of a concordance. So again, it's, it's not simply the plain definition of a word, but it's how it's employed by Scripture, uh, how it is used, the context that gives us the understanding and the meaning. Uh, and that's very true here of, of foreknowledge. Um, Pink gives some uh, examples of this uh, that, um, that show how a, a word may not be obvious in its meaning in Scripture. One of those is flesh. Uh, we understand Pastor Sharp's been preaching through uh, Romans, talking about the flesh. Uh, we know that that's not simply referring to our, our corporeal bodies, our physical bodies, uh, but it's referring to our sin nature uh, and the nature that clings to us, even for those of us who are redeemed. Uh, so it's, it's, that's not a plain, uh, uh, that word is not plain on its face in Scripture, but we have to look at how it's used. Another one is the world. It doesn't simply mean our location of human existence, creation, you know, uh, the physical world, nor is it simply referring to the entire human race. Uh, it's referring to uh, other things in Scripture. 
for instance, the uh, the verse, and I can't remember the where it is, but talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not talking about simply um, simply the physical world. It's talking about all of the sinful fallen uh, things, the fallen kingdom of the world. Uh, it's a different meaning. Pink also uh, offers Im- the word immortality as an example of this. It doesn't simply refer uh, to the indestructibility of the soul. Pink says that, and I didn't test him on this, I'm not a, a scholar in, in Greek or Hebrew, um, so I'll take him at his word. Pink says that the words mortal and immortal in Scripture uh, refer to the body most often, that he's talking about uh, the mortal body and the immortal body um, refers to those, those things. But again, his, his point here is that um, the word is not plain on its face. And so how is the word no or for no used in scripture? It's not used to refer merely to cognition or mental or intellectual understanding, but it actually refers to God's affection, his favor, and his love. So I'll read again from Pink. Instead of imagining that these words, no and forno, signify no more than a simple cognition, the different passages in which they occur require to be carefully weighed. The word foreknowledge is not found in the Old Testament, but no occurs there frequently. When that term is used in connection with God, it often signifies to regard with favor, denoting not mere condition, uh, cognition, but an affection for the object in view. I know thee by thy name. That's Exodus thirty-three seventeen. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Deuteronomy nine twenty-four. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Jeremiah one five. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Hosea eight four. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos three two. In these passages, knew signifies either loved or appointed. And really, to interpret it a different way, that it's simply referring to cognition, would undermine, would actually undermine, if he's saying he knew particular people, does that imply that he did not know cognitively uh, others? That would undermine his omniscience, his his comprehensive knowledge. So again, we can't interpret it uh, simply from what it appears on the face of the word. In like manner, the word know is frequently used in the New Testament in the same sense as the Old Testament. And he has several citations there that I I don't think we need to go to. But the word is used the same in both Old and New Testament. So foreknowledge in the New Testament is actually more explicit in that it always refers to persons and not to facts or events. And this is very helpful and instructive in understanding what it means. Um, the examples of this, uh, Acts 2.23, and I've got these just written on my notes to save a little bit of time. Um, Acts 2.23 says, Him, referring to Christ, being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God. So it doesn't refer to the act of crucifixion being foreknown. That would be cognitive. That would be intellectual. But it's referring to the one crucified. It's referring to Christ, who is foreknown. The one crucified is foreknown. 
Romans 8, 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. It's not what God foreknew, but it is whom God foreknew. That's incredibly important. Romans eleven two, 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Again, it's God's people that are foreknown. It's not things or acts, events. It is people. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Refers to, uh, it's referring there to the believing Jews of the diaspora in Peter's opening uh, statements in 1 Peter. So they are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Again, referring to people. So as Pink has stated, foreknowledge does not refer to the acts of certain ones. They're repenting or believing. It doesn't refer to those acts being foreseen by God and therefore which move him to elect them unto salvation. Instead, scripture teaches that it is persons who are the object of God's foreknowledge. It is always persons who are foreknown by God. So Pink there has established what foreknowledge is not (laughs) at this point. It's not cognition. It's not knowing something beforehand, but it is connected to persons. So how does God foreknow persons? What is foreknowledge? Pink says that scripture affirms that God in his high sovereignty singled out certain ones to be recipients of his distinguishing favors. And therefore, he determined to bestow upon them the gift of faith. So it refers to God's choosing of some in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it refers to election. All men are not alike to God. He created all men in his image, but he does not regard all men alike. His affections are not placed on all men in the same way, uniformly. Foreknowledge is an attribute that reveals God's distinguishing, choosing, and electing love from eternity past for particular persons in Christ. So it's not an attribute that is, uh, that is experienced or enjoyed by those who are not in Christ. It is always true of God that he foreknows. But not all are foreknown by God. Only those whom God foreknew did he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of Christ. This by implication teaches there are those whom God did not foreknow and who will not be conformed to the image of Christ. And I wanted to point out a few uh, quotes or paraphrases. Pastor Sharp actually preached on this um, back in April when he was uh, preaching on the uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30 passage. He had several sermons on that. um, And they were very helpful. I went back and listened to his portion of that sermon um, from April 16th entitled The Order of Salvation, where he talked about foreknowledge. And he, he said much the same as Pink did. He said that foreknowledge is a distinguishing, electing, and eternal love of God for certain persons. To be known of God is to be loved by God, set apart from the sinful lump of humanity. 
To be foreknown of God is to be loved from eternity. Foreknowledge is not passive, a mere sitting back and looking ahead at what will happen in the future, but it is active. It's an electing love. In foreknowledge, God sets his love on a man in advance. So again, it's important that as we understand that this is God setting his love on people in advance, that we make very clear that God's foreknowledge does not cause... um, God's foreknowledge of a person or of their faith does not cause God to elect that person. Uh, It is of his own sovereign will. It's not seeing something in a person in advance. We've already said it, but Pink returns to that fact um, because it's so important. Anytime we see the idea or the uh, word in Scripture of foreknowledge, uh, of election, that it has nothing to do with our uh, our, um, faith that he sees in advance. Yes. So the, the order is election, then foreknowledge, because it places everything within the realm of God's will to save in election, not some distinguishing characteristic of the individual within foreknowledge. That, that... Right, yeah. So you said it, it goes election and then foreknowledge. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, though... Let's see. Romans 8 puts it foreknowledge and then predestination. But I think what we can... God's decree is first. So he he decrees all things to be. Um, And so in his decree is contemplated uh, all things that will come to pass. Um, And so in that, his elect are are known by him. But I, I think... And we can get, there's some, uh, definitely some theological debates over some of these things and what happens when the logical order, we get into the, uh, um, what, prelapsarian, superlapsarianism that I don't fully understand, uh, to be quite honest. But I do think, you know, what we have in scripture is we are foreknown by God, uh, by his own sovereign will. That's the, the main point. He's not looking ahead to something in us. Glenn? Yeah, uh, to Dan's point, it depends on how you define foreknowledge. If it's the stereotypical way that you're debunking, or whether it's the way that Pink and Pastor Sharp just put it, that, right. that depends whether it precedes or follows election. Now, the biblical use of foreknowledge here is very clear on that First uh, Peter 1 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So in that case, foreknowledge precedes, doesn't follow. In right. In, 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 the, in that uh, erroneous understanding of foreknowledge, that God foresees our faith, in that sense, yes, it follows the election. The election comes first, not based on what, what he was going to see in us. He sees in us as a result of his election. But in the true biblical understanding of foreknowledge that, that you're promoting this morning, uh, election follows foreknowledge. It doesn't precede it. That's an important point. I mean, Peter said right. it explicitly. Yeah, elect according to the foreknowledge. That's that's helpful. Glenn, thank you. So that's First Peter um, 2. One verse or excuse two. me, 1 verse 2. Yeah. Um, 
helpful. I, I think that distinguishing between how foreknowledge is used commonly and used in Scripture is helpful. Um, and, and frankly, at times, it seemed Pink was kind of going back and forth a little bit in how he described it, trying to uh, disprove one view of how Scripture uses foreknowledge and the wrong implications in that, um, and then showing the true use of it in Scripture. Um, so at times, it, it seemed that he was going back and forth in how he was using it a little bit. Um, but that's helpful. Is that helpful to you, Dan? Okay. Any other questions on that point? Because it is a little confusing, the semantics of it. Um, but the truth of it from Scripture is, is plain, that we are known by God in a particular way. We are set apart in and by his love from eternity past. So that is uh, the truth that is in Scripture that Pink is setting forth as well. Okay, let me see. All right. All right. Um, Pink's closing paragraph on this chapter, I think, is a good way to wrap up this part of our discussion. It thus appears that it is highly important for us to have clear and scriptural views of the foreknowledge of God. Erroneous conceptions about it lead inevitably to thoughts most dishonoring to him. The popular idea of divine foreknowledge, that being God looking ahead to something in us and electing us based on what he sees uh, in us in the future. That popular idea is altogether inadequate. God not only knew the end from the beginning, but he planned, fixed, predestinated everything from the beginning. And as cause stands to effect, so God's purpose is the ground of his prescience. If then the reader be a real Christian, he is so because God chose him in Christ before the foundation of the world, quoting Ephesians 1.4, and chose not because he foresaw you would believe, but chose simply because it pleased him to choose. Chose you notwithstanding your natural unbelief. This being so, all the glory and praise belongs alone to him. You have no ground for taking any credit to yourself. You have believed through grace. Quoting Acts 18.27. And that because your very election was of grace. Romans 11.5. Okay, so defining foreknowledge as God's uh, eternal electing love brings us to discuss the love of God. We're getting short-ish on time. So we'll see if we can get through. All right, so in my edition, this is chapter 15. Um, Pink, in this chapter, makes much of the fact that God is love. And, and that is a scriptural truth from John, uh, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Um, we know that about all of God's attributes. We talked about the, that the first week, referring to the simplicity of God. Uh, all of his attributes are God himself. His attributes declare and reveal to us his divine essence and his being. Um, and this is explicit in scripture, uh, referring to his love. A pink spends, excuse me, drop my paper. 
King spends the chapter discussing the properties of God's love. And it's very helpful, but he doesn't actually define it. Um, in part, I think it's because it, it's God himself. We can't define it. Um, we only see what scripture, uh, to how it describes it, how it discusses it, how God's love is shown in scripture. But I did find a helpful description. I hesitate to call it definition, but description uh, in Van Maastricht. He says that love is nothing but a propensity of the will toward a thing, just as hatred is an aversion from a thing. So Van Maastricht categorizes love as one of God's affections. And he discusses affections as an operation or an act of God's will. So this is, I think that that's important because so often we understand love as this emotion that comes over us. We are passive and love is just something that happens to us. That's not true of God's love. He is active. It is purposeful. It is his will uh, towards someone or something. So it's an operation of God's act or his, uh, an operation or act of God's will. And Van Maastricht says this, the love of God is his willing that which agrees with himself or that which is his own, so to speak, and is operating in regard to it just as the affection of love in man does, embracing union with it or embracing its presence, blessing it and resting in its goodness. So I think that's helpful. It's, it's God willing that which agrees with himself or that which is his own. So God's love and the objects of his love are always going to be um, consistent with his character. God loves nothing that is inconsistent with his character. So Pink begins... By talking about how we so often go astray in attempting to understand God's love um, and how we fail to do so. He says, there are many today who talk about the love of God who are total strangers to the God of love. The divine love is commonly regarded as a species of amiable weakness, a sort of good natured indulgence. It is reduced to a mere sickly sentiment, patterned after human emotion. Now the truth is that on this, as on everything else, our thoughts need to be formed and regulated by what is revealed thereon in Holy Scripture. That there is urgent need for this is apparent not only from the ignorance which so generally prevails, but also the low state of spirituality which is now so sadly evident everywhere among professing Christians. How little real love there is for God. One chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with his wondrous love for his people. The better we are acquainted with his love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more will our hearts be drawn out in love to him. And I think we can all see the effects of that every day when people... Uh, when, when modern culture defines love, proclaims it in songs, in film, in art, um, it is so empty and so selfish compared to the love that we see 
on the pages of Scripture, poured out to God's people. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about how God describes that or how Scripture describes that and sets it forth. So we can't understand the Creator's love by studying the kind of love experienced by creatures. So we cannot look inward to discover the love of God. That's a great error. So um, Pink has several properties of God's love uh, that he goes through. And I've combined a few of them because they kind of are saying the same thing. Um, He talks about uh, the love of God. And and again, I I would point out that these descriptions of God's love, God's love is an attribute, but all of these descriptions are also attributes of God. Um, this is one of the things that I mentioned, uh, in, I think, in our first week, um, that you can't get away from in reading about the attributes of God. All of the attributes describe each other, themselves. They all describe God. They all modify one another. Um, because we're talking about God, we can't get away from describing God with himself. <laughs> he defines himself, uh, even in our weak way of trying to discuss and, and understand him. So... Pink talks about God's love being uninfluenced and sovereign. Consider for a moment um, the love of a creature, the love that creatures have. Often it's in response to something. It's a response to its object. It sees something of value or beauty in the person or thing that we love and we respond to that. Uh, we, We love that thing because it's beautiful. That is influenced. That's conditional. Or our love is transactional. We love because someone else loves us. Or because we can get something out of it. Or our love is selfish. We love because of the way another person makes us feel. Which is actually just loving ourselves. Often our love is passive. Something that we experience. That we have no control over. God's love is entirely different. God's love springs forth out of his own sovereign will and good pleasure. Pink uses the word spontaneous. His love is spontaneous, not because it arises suddenly and, and, and has some origin. That's not what he means. He means it's spontaneous from himself. God's love is in and of himself. It's not influenced by anything in the creature or anything outside himself. I want to read Deuteronomy 7. Verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God loves you because he loves you. It is entirely from himself. His sovereign will, his sovereign choice. Okay, we're getting short on time. So I think I'm going to abbreviate some of these points.
Pink talks about God's love, uh, the properties of God's love being eternal and immutable, which we've already kind of gotten to. It, it, uh, God's love is eternal. We talked about that with the foreknowledge of God. His love for his people uh, sets them apart from eternity. And it never changes. Jeremiah 31.3 says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and in love he predestinated us. That's Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. God's love is not influenced by time. It had no origin, and it does not change. And what a comfort that is for those of us who have love, who have God's love, being the objects of his love, an eternal love, There was never a time when we did not have God's love. Although we were at one time under God's wrath due to our sin, even then we were predestinated in love. And what a glorious mystery that is, to be in time under God's wrath and yet in eternity loved of God. That is a mystery. Pink also talks about God's love being infinite. um, And he here uses, uh, borrows a quote from John Brine, which I think sums this point up well. No tongue can fully express the infinitude of God's love, or any mind comprehend it. It passeth knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. The most extensive ideas that a finite mind can frame about divine love are infinitely below its true nature. The heaven is not so far above the earth as the goodness of God is, beyond the most raised conceptions which we are able to form of it. It is an ocean which swells higher than all the mountains of opposition in such as are the objects of it. It is a fountain from which flows all necessary good to all those who are interested in it. And by the word interested there, he doesn't mean just curious, intellectually curious. The word interested there means we have an interest, we have a claim on the love of God. And because of that, it is a fountain from which flows all necessary good. All right, we'll leave the infinity of God's love there in its mystery. Uh, Importantly as well, Pink talks about the love of God being holy. He says, God will not wink at sin, even in his own people. His love is pure, unmixed with any maudlin sentimentality. Uh, So again, the idea that um, God's love is an expression, an act of his will toward what agrees with him. So if it does not agree with God, if it is not consistent with his character, with his law, he does not love it. Scripture says in Proverbs 3, 12, and it is quoted again in Hebrews 12, 6, that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He chastens because he is holy, and those whom he loves with a perfect love will also be holy to him. And the last one is, the last property of God's love is that it is gracious. Pink says that the love and the favor of God are inseparable. So grace being understood generally as as unmerited favor, we've already seen that nothing in us can cause God to love us. It's sovereign, his love is sovereign and uninfluenced. 
So we know that God's love is a gift and only a gift of God's grace. So how do we come to possess this gift of grace? Uh, And I want to deviate a little bit from pink. Um, The Westminster Larger uh, Catechism in question 31 asks, With whom was the covenant of grace made? The answer there states that the covenant of grace was made uh, with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. So the fruits of grace are for Christ and for all those in him. We are loved by God from everlasting because we have been given to Christ from everlasting as his inheritance. So that he might be glorified as the firstborn among many brethren. So the love we have from God, we have because the father loves the son and has given us to the son that we might be one with him. And I want to read part of the high priestly prayer from John 17. And this will, I think, be how we conclude. I might say short something after. Okay, John 17. Oops, wrong. Starting at verse 20. And this is Christ in his high priestly prayer. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you, And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So if you are a Christian, never forget that you are loved by God because God the Father loves his Son. It is because God loves the Son and has given you to the Son that you possess the love of God, which is a benefit of his grace. And how different this is from the paltry and fading love known by the world. And what a glorious hope we have, an unshakable confidence in the promise of the one who cannot lie, that we will one day see the very face of the one called by the name love. All right, we will leave it there and I'll pray. To conclude, Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your love, your love which is incomprehensible to us and yet revealed to us. And as it is revealed in Scripture, so you send your Spirit to help us understand, to open our eyes and hearts that we might see and hear with the eyes of faith and believe all that you say in your word. That we might behold 
the greatest picture of love that has ever been. And that being Christ crucified on Calvary. For in your love for your son, you did not withhold great pain and suffering from him. And even so, as we experience at times difficulty, pain, struggle in life, persecution and affliction, we know that nothing can separate us from your love because our love is secured by Christ and held by him. And our access to it is in him. Father, we thank you for the assurance that that can give us and pray that we might know and feel and experience that assurance more and more. Father, even as we proceed to worship together, to hear your word preached, we will see Christ laid before the eyes of faith in the preaching. We pray that you might do this thing, that you might pour out your spirit on your people today. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.